You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 20 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. Can you believe it? We've reached 20 episodes. It's only taken about three years. Though in my defence, the last four or five have actually been in the last few weeks, which equals about 25%, so we're on a bit of a streak. Um, today, it was a bit of a force, actually. Uh, we managed to sit down with the Leicester Riders' Kevin Routledge. He's obviously been around a long time and has a load of very interesting insight. The internet, though, at my place was incredibly dodgy. Now, I don't normally expect there to be problems when I'm making a call UK to UK. But uh, for some reason today there were a load of issues and the moment we started the call we had to restart it and I realised that there were going to be a few problems. And so I had two options, either one, reschedule the interview, which means I would miss the regular Monday posting that I've been managing to stick to recently or just go ahead with it and hope that we can see it through, which is what I did. Now we went for about an hour um, and there are times when it gets pretty inaudible um, I've gone through and I've edited and tried to clean it up a little bit and clear out the parts where it gets particularly bad. And then there are parts where it's perfect and stays perfect for 10, 15 minutes. So you're just going to have to bear with it, I'm afraid. And I hope, well, I know that you can still hear it. It just gets a little bit frustrating. Um, but yeah, really good conversation. After last week's interview with Paul Blake from the Newcastle Eagles, we had a, a massive amount of positive feedback and a few people followed up asking whether or not we could get um, Kevin Routledge on to speak facilities and what difference it's made to the riders since they've had it. Uh, as you will hear from Kevin, it's still an ongoing project, but it is making a substantial difference to the things that they can do in Leicester. We probably didn't touch upon a load of the things that I wanted to either. Um, originally, we did have a, a sort of hour and a half, two hour slot scheduled, but because the internet decided to call it a day uh, with the intention of doing a part two uh, at some point in the future. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a good one. Have a listen. Let me know what you think. As always, I am on every single social media platform at HoopsFix. or my email address is sam at hoopsfix.com. Please hit me up with feedback. Let me know what you think. And if you do have a spare minute, drop onto iTunes, give us a rating, give us a re- review. It will help us rise in the rankings, which will help spread the word about British basketball even further. Anyway, I'll leave you there. Uh, here is my conversation with Kevin Rowledge. We're honoured to be here with Leicester Riders chairman, Kevin Rowledge. Kevin, thanks for joining us. No, thank you, jo- uh, Thank you, Sam. So, uh, last week, um, I spoke to um, Newcastle Eagles, Paul Blake, and there was a, a massive amount of positive feedback on that interview, and a lot of people actually requested a follow-up with yourself, which is why I've kind of uh, got you on here. So, I, I, I feel like that's a an obvious place to start in terms of um, collaboration. Now, Paul says that he's been down to speak to you about kind of the stuff that you've been doing with your own facility and how you've been going about it. You know, how closely do you work with other BBL clubs and how important do you think it is for you guys to be able to move the game forward? I think it is uh, tremendously important. Um, we learned a great deal of lessons from uh, this project. I have a background in construction. I spent 40 years building power stations um, so I can bring a degree of background and experience to it anyway. Um, I've been working closely with Paul and with Yuri and the gang up in Sheffield as well. Uh, we had, uh, we've had numbers of contractors coming down 
to talk about what we've done, how we've done it. Um, and in fact, last Friday at the Leicester Business Festival, um, uh, promoted by Leicestershire and Rutland Sport, we had a conference on uh, how we got this arena built. Uh, we had about 50 delegates from or a number of um, uh, national governing bodies, the city council, contractors, architects, and so on. And the the title of the um, the title of the uh, presentation was breaking the mold. And um, I think we have managed at Leicester to break the mold. We've been able to build something that's very very functional, very cost effective, and uh, um, we also think uh, for the sport in moving in moving it forward. Yeah, sorry. Um, I was going to say that uh, now that you have been in, and you know, Paul was talking about the the impact that he thinks it would have on on his club. What sort of impact has having your own facility had on on you guys? I, I think it comes at a whole number of levels. First of all. Uh, we've got a venue which uh, we're extremely proud of, which we can show to players wanting to come and play. Um, and it's it helps a great deal with recruitment. It's clearly a, a facility designed with basketball in mind. That's a priority sport in the venue. It also works at another level in terms of inspiring young players. Um, so we've had a big uptick in uh, the number of young boys and girls who want to play and they want to come to the venue and uh, play where the riders play. But much more importantly, it's absolutely critical to the sustainability and growth of the sport going forward. Because finally now, it is not just about ticket sales, although ticket sales are always important in any sport, but it's also about food and beverage sales and it's also about the things that go on during the week away from the game. It broadens the um, income base of a basketball club and it makes it much more akin to football, rugby and cricket. Um, one couldn't imagine football, rugby and cricket teams at any level um, uh, turning up at venues owned by third parties with a bag of kit and a bag of balls and expecting to build a sustainable uh, club, which is uh, part of the community and long lasting. And if we're talking about uh, real world uh, actual figures, uh, you know, Paul said that he estimates that he thinks that he'll be able to double his turnover on a game night. Um, when you look at your own financials, what sort of difference has it actually made to your bottom line on game nights and throughout the course of the season? So that's, uh, those are good numbers that Paul's given you. We are seeing those kind of um, upticks um, in terms of the game night. So we have a much more uh, professional operation. We're able to provide for the first time corporate hospitality, proper sit-down meals and so on. Um, that market is going to build. Uh, traditionally, our customers don't expect it. Um, if they wanted to go for a sit-down meal, they'll go to Leicester Tigers or to uh, the football now they know they can get that uh, offer at the basketball, but um, it'll take time to build that market. We're, in, we're moving into a different market. It isn't something that happens overnight. You've got to go to the corporates and explain what services you can now offer them. Um, but we've had uniformly positive feedback from that corporate hospitality offer. So we know we're getting it right now. It's just a matter of getting the message out there and getting the numbers up. You know, I was going to say that, you know, it's, it's obviously the first step is to get the facility built. But then, you know, once you've built it, you've then got 
two and a half thousand seats week in week out that you need to uh, that you need to fill. How much of a challenge would you say it is um, to get bums on seats week in week out, and kind of uh, how do you go about ensuring that you do that or come close to that? Yeah, it it is a big challenge, and and you've you you put the finger on it. It's you can get lots of people to come to any one off event. Our first game on January the thirtieth, we were full. Uh, but it was the first venue in the first game in the venue, and uh, people were excited to come. When we played Newcastle, it was full. When we played Sheffield, that it was full. But it's about filling it all the way through. And that is really about building the season ticket base. We've had an uptick in season tickets this season. Uh, we would like to get to the place where uh, uh, well-established clubs for football uh, they have about sixty percent of their capacity is season tickets. We would like to get to that level. Uh, it's going to be busy just developing the tickets uh, once every week or once every two weeks at the home games. It's about filling all that time with that core time with three uh, large uh, courts for basketball, whatever we choose to use it for exhibitions and so on. And it's about getting into that mode of operation. One of the interesting things we found was that the lead time for major events, uh, and in our model, basketball is about half the major events in our facility. The lead time is 12 to 18 months on venues. So there's a well-established market, well-established marketing process. Uh, We've been approached about world championships in martial arts in 2018. That's the sort of lead time. So I guess if we were really, really clever, we would have been out marketing for these other events uh, before we even started the build. And that just shows you the lead time. So you got to get into the business. you got to know where to market. You have to put yourself out and about. But again, this is no, uh, this is nothing, nothing, nothing unusual, nothing peculiar, but it starts to take the club into a, a different place and what makes the uh, arena work because ultimately the arena is there to be the um, home of the Leicester Riders. What would you say have been the biggest surprises, things you weren't expecting or things that have arisen that maybe you weren't expecting um, or hadn't even thought about before having the facility built? Um, Maybe, you know, in terms of the actual build, um, one of the biggest early challenges was the fact that we had a brownfield site, contaminated ex-gas works. And um, it was a big surprise to me. Uh, and I have a background in physics and I've done chemistry at quite a high level. Big surprise to me, the uncertainties that there are in this area and how they're addressed. Uh, that's absolutely nothing to do with basketball, but it was still uh, quite a, quite a challenging area. In the end, we were able to find a way through that um, very effectively, uh, but it certainly was uh, something I had not anticipated. In terms of the actual build, it was relatively straightforward. Uh, there was no uh, major surprise, no major uncertainties. Our biggest challenge was we were working with a, a very limited amount of cash. Uh, we had worked very, very hard to get all the funds together. And as we went along, there were lots of extra things we would like to do. And you always have to limit yourself there in terms of the types of finishes and so on. But 
we did do a fair amount of future proofing of the venue so that for future things we might want to do, uh, we have the capability of adding additional kit uh, later. I think the bigger challenges and the bigger surprises have been actually on the operational side where, um, f for example, the lead time that there is for major events hadn't really occurred to us. Thinking about it now, it's bloody obvious. But at the time we were doing uh, the preparations and the build, we hadn't really thought about it. I think that's just our lack of experience in that area. And uh, perhaps if we consulted more widely, um, we might have we might have known that. All our focus and attention was let's get the thing built. Why Why do you think it, it's taken so long for a BBL club to have have got to this point? Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the need for facilities for so many years. Is it just a funding thing, or, or are, there, are there other barriers that have been in place? Um, I, I, I think, I think, actually, it, it surprises me that we hadn't really focused very hard on the need for the sport to have assets. I mean, there are no assets in the sport. The NGBs don't have any assets. Um, the clubs don't any, have any. Yeah, you think about it, it's, it's, it really is obvious. How were we ever going to develop as a sport if we were always dependent on third parties for, for the, it's obvious looking back on it. But actually, so part of the, part of the problem has been there hasn't really been any strategic imperative. There's always been a discussion about facilities at the sort of community level, i.e. we should have more places for people to play basketball. But there was never any drive at the more commercial um, and strategic level, which is will never be a sustainable sport. Assets. So one is, um, I don't think the right sort of thinking process has ever been put into it because they were part and parcel of the l larger traditional sports, but never never part of any uh, internal, sorry, inside uh, so all the outside sports, it was just part and parcel of it. So I think that's the issue. The other issue is it does take, um, uh, um, to build these kind of assets, does take a lot, lot of effort and a lot of uh, uh, public sector support. Uh, and in order to do that, it takes a lot of time and effort and paperwork to do that. And, uh, you know, people don't have the time to uh, to invest in that. Um so it does pose a challenge. Now we know the ropes a lot better. Um, for example, um, I was able to share a lot of the information and process and paperwork uh, with Paul. And I think he's found that helpful. And he's been able to leverage that and move on. And the next time we do it, I think we should be able to, we, uh, when I talk about we, we, the sport clubs, the BBL, and so on, we should be able to do it uh, efficiently once we've established the, the roadmap through. By the way, the way we've done it is not the only way to do it. There are, are alternative models, um, but each of them poses its, its own challenge. Well, you know, you have a, a, a number of different funding partners. Um, so how, how does it actually work now moving forward? Like, is there a pressure on you, like the club or the organization that's sort of behind the um, facility to turn a profit and actually make money like if if for example it isn't profitable over the next few years 
is there a chance you would lose the facility? Like, how does all that side of things work? So the way we structure this is the arena uh, charity. The charity is the Lister Riders Foundation. Therefore, if the arena uh, is not sustainable financially, it could it could cause the collapse of the uh, charity. Put brutally, frankly. So yes, um, what we have to do is figure out a way to make it operate sustainably. A little bit is you know what we charge, uh, what charges the riders because they are the anchor tenancy um, in there, and what charge we make to the public, and uh, what charges we make to third parties. Um, our partners like Leicester College, Leicester City Council, they made investments in the form of grants. They're up front. They are not providing any grants uh, on an ongoing basis, so there's no revenue funding coming from that from those sources. We didn't ask for any. They didn't offer us any, uh, quite rightly, to so it is all about making it a sustainable business. That's our lesser challenge. The Leicester Riders challenge is to make this a sustainable business. No doubt we'll make this the next time when Paul opens or other venues open. They'll be able to learn from that um, and hopefully get to sustainable operation um, uh, in a more uh, less risky, more robust way. Uh, than we have, we're learning our lessons as we go along. How how many uh, how much sort of non basketball activity actually takes place at the facility at the moment? So at the moment, um, we have um, a plan that says about half the events being, and we're on target for uh, so half uh, the events are riders or riders exhibitions or other related uh, uh, basketball. So that's the event side. In terms of the um, day-to-day activity um the leicester college has access to two or three courts and, and they're multi during the day during term hours uh, and during the day they multi they're doing a lot of their multi-sport than they ever have done in the past but probably a quarter of their time is on basketball that's just my rough estimate in terms of the rest of the time um considerably more than half towards three quarters is basketball and the rest is non-basketball so we do have other events as actually and other uh, activities going on in there in um five aside including feeding um uh, uh, some badminton and so on and then i guess the obvious question um which kind of everyone's thinking about is now that you have the facility how does that change things for the club in terms of um, competing in Europe, you know, I know there were conversations about you guys potentially entering the Basketball Champions League for this season. Um, you know that hasn't happened. Like, what what are kind of your thoughts on that, and where do you see it going? And you know, how soon do you think it could happen? So we have announced that we would like to play in Europe in the seventeen uh, eighteen season um, without the venue. Uh, that would be uh, really really difficult. Because again, if whatever whatever league you play in in Europe, you've got to have your venue on the dates you're given for your home game. And if you're working with a third party venue, that's not always possible uh, to get those dates. So now it gives us the opportunity to do so. Um, the next challenge is how do we do it sustainably? We've seen in the past 
clubs like Leicester have competed in Europe many years ago um, and found it uh, quite burdensome uh, overall financially. Uh, and that's because you've got to build uh, a different core core business support to support the, 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 the activities in Europe, which you see with many of the top clubs in Europe that they have um, sponsors who are there because of their European play. So we've got to do all of that. The other challenge is, is getting people out in a midweek uh, game. Uh, again, if you look at the typical basketball supporter for the riders currently, it's particularly families with young children at weekends. Now you get them out on a school night. It's not so straightforward. And that's why it's really important to build the corporate market because I think it's going to be more of a corporate pitch during the week. I note that in Europe, many, many clubs do not get great crowds at some of their European games. So I think this is a generic issue. It's not an issue particularly to the UK. And therefore, uh, we will certainly be talking to European clubs about how they make it work in European competition. And I don't think it's the same answer as how they work, make it work in terms of playing in their domestic leagues. And then in terms of which competition you'd enter, are we talking about the Basketball Champions League or is that still unclear? Uh, it's unclear to me because I guess um, I, I don't know what the... Um, what uh, you, you know, w uh, where we're going to finish at the end of the season, what will be offered, uh, what comes first. I'm quite certain Euro League will not be knocking on our door uh, to to join them. Um, so yeah, the Champions League is is the obvious obvious one. What are the criteria? How many teams are they going to take from the UK? What are the, what's the terms and conditions for joining? Um, uh, none of that. We are com we've commissioned a report. Um, to look into all of that, uh, we asked Russell Levinston to spend some time digging into all of that information. We want to go into this uh, project with our eyes wide open to every aspect of playing in Europe because you want to play in Europe successfully. You want it to be a great experience. You want it to be something that you learn from and grow and get better. And you can only do that if you plan for it and plan very well for it. A lot of times teams get to the end of the season and think, oh, look at that. Aren't we great? Let's go into Europe. And it's like, no, that's not that's not the right way to do things. It's been done that way in the past. And we've we've heard the um, some of the stories about how that's all turned out. And it's not been happy, uh, a happy uh, situation. So we don't want to be there. We want to play in Europe on a sustainable basis. And have you ha already had an, any initial conversations with, with FIBA at all? Yes, so we have had discussions with uh, FIBA. Um, we've had discussions with BBF. Um, we, the, everyone is keen to have teams from the UK playing in, in Europe without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but um, we're going to have more discussions now with other clubs who play in Europe and who have the pedigree because they've got the inside track, they understand the numbers, they understand the fa uh, the finances, they know what it means in terms of squads, squad sizes, medical sport, 
who has to travel, uh, and so on. And then you've got to still have a, a squad that can compete in the domestic league at the weekends. So there's a huge amount of stuff to consider if you want to get it right. What would you say uh, the total cost would be to a club um, in terms of the extra budget you would need if you were going to compete in a European competition over the course of a season? That's, that's the thing we're trying to get to the bottom of, Sam, but it's, uh, it's going to be in the hundreds of thousands. It won't be... Uh, it won't be less than that, wow. um, and uh, and so therefore you need to you need as I say you need to have planet you need to know where it's going to come from. Um, Europe creates opportunity and it creates risk, uh, as in all new business propositions of this type, and um, uh, you need to be very realistic about it uh, and plan properly for it. So that's what we intend to do. In terms of uh, the business structure and kind of financials of, of, of the, the riders, um, we spoke about it a little bit with Paul, and he was saying that, um, that he separates his... So he's got his foundation, then he's got the club, and he, he draws a distinct red line between the two. Um, and at the moment, the whole thing altogether is turning over about $1.1 million, which to me I thought was pretty impressive. Like, are you able to share any numbers like that which would give us sort of a, a background insight into kind of the numbers that riders and riders foundations are running with and what proportion of um, of each part is coming from where? Um, so so uh, we are structured in exactly the same way as Paul. So we have the club, which is a company limited by shares. Um, it's the sort of the investment vehicle upon which people can get a return. We have a, a charity called the Leicester Riders Art Foundation. It's exactly the same as the Eagles Community Foundation. It's a national charity. It's run by to uh, cha- uh, the laws of the Charity Commission. Uh, so you have to have complete separation of those two things, which we do. The only the extra element that we have is that the charity owns the arena company, the company that builds and operate uh, that built and operates the arena. If you just look at the arena, uh, sorry, not for, set aside the arena. If you look at the uh, riders and uh, their foundation, in other words, to compare with um, Paul, um, the numbers are very similar to Newcastle. Um, so we're also in the ballpark of the numbers that uh, Paul has talked about. We're in a growth phase at the moment, so we'll probably end up above that figures uh, by the end of the year. Uh, but there's a fair few things in, in play at the moment that will determine that the outcome for that year. But very, very similar to Paul. And we think now with the arena, that will drive it further forward. Uh, we haven't yet speculated. We have a plan. We have a budget. But we don't have any proof one way or the other what that's going to outturn at. And we only went into into the arena partway through last season. So we haven't had one season's worth of arena impact. We will have that by the end of this season. What do you think uh, are the biggest challenges that you, not only you as a club face, but all BBL clubs face trying to sort of make it in this British basketball landscape? I think the biggest thing is um, uncertainty. Um, So we've gone through... um, a period of uh, significant change uh, at the NGB level, uh, as you know well, Sam. Yeah. So in a large change of personnel, 
Um, there's been significant, there's been the whole funding issue with UK Sport and so on and so forth. There's the creation of the BBF. Um, and what this has brought in is an influx of new people uh, with new ideas. Uh, very welcome. Some of them, you know, in, in many cases, very, very high quality people, which has got to be good for the sport long term. Um, but there's also been some uh, missed opportunities, uh, cul-de-sacs down which we went um, and so on. And all through that time, there, ha there has been an uncertainty created about the long term sustainable path for the sport. Um, and I think that has been a negative overall on, on, on the ability of clubs to grow and, and the ability of the BBL to um, push forward and do what it needs to do uh, um, in terms to, to sustain the sport, to sustain the league, to sustain clubs. Um, I don't want to go back over some of the stuff that went on over the last few years, but it's been been damaging without a shot of it out. We do seem to attract um, certain types of people who think, you know, there's a quick win to be had here, a quick buck to be made. It's a shame, really, because when you look in Europe, in well-established leagues, uh, they've done it by a much more measured process. Um, they haven't looked for quick wins. They've built uh, community programs. They've built player pathways. They've built uh, clubs with infrastructure. Um, and, you know, they're realizing now the, the benefits of doing that way. If you look at the German uh, league, um, the progress that it's made over the last four or five years, um, also called the BBL, um, but that's also built around a lot of developments that have been made in the regions and in regional and local leagues. The, th the two things go together, and it's very hard for any part of the sport to make great progress if flux is happening in other parts of, of the sport. And we have had parts of the sport in a consistent churn for four or five years now. Yeah, I guess kind of on, on that note... Um you know, there's been it's pretty much ever since ever since Keith Mayer left Barcelona England as the former CEO, uh, everything's been changing. There's been a lot of stuff going on. Um, there was Hugh Morgan and all this stuff with Beeble UK, um, and it kind of, I guess, turned into a there, well, there was quite a public war of words between the BBL and Barcelona England, um, and all this and all this sort of stuff going on, like. What would you say the relationship is like now? Obviously, there's a new CEO, um, Stuart Kelly, in place at Boss Wingland. Like, how would you say the relationship with the professional league, the BBL, and Boss Wingland is at the moment? I think it's in a very, very good shape now. Um, Stuart Kelly is a new person who's come in. He's come in from cycling, so he's got a learning curve to go from a sport that's basically individually focused and highly successful, like cycling, to a sport that is a team team orientated and um, a, a, and a very different kettle of fish um, so uh, it's still early days Stuart's only been in um, you know best part of a year um, but, but we're liking what we hear from him we've got a meeting with him this week uh, to sit down and go through so, uh, some of the challenges um, and um, you know I'm hopeful we can go forward ditto BBF um, 
I mean, it's great shame and a great loss to the sport that Nick Humby has uh, chosen to uh, st step down. Um, but we had been making progress uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, there's been huge numbers of conversations um, all through the year. Uh, and, you know, it's hard for you, hard for the public to see the evidence of all this. But we will over the next uh, number of months. Uh, so I think it's it's all it's all been for the good. We've come out of that process of slinging stuff at each other, of people trying to do things uh, in in an inappropriate way, um, and the huge damage that that did to basketball England, who are still suffering the consequences of all of that. Uh, but you know we need to put that behind us and move forward. And uh, as I say, there are some very, very good people uh, now in the governing bodies, and I'm confident that we can make progress and move forward. What, uh, what are your <laughs> thoughts on Nick Humby's departure? You know, it seems very sudden, like, you know, he's only been in the position officially 10 months or so. Um, and, you know, I made a comment in, a, in my weekly newsletter about it's an interesting one where a lot of people will say, oh, they want uh, that, you know, there's too many non-basketball people becoming involved with this sport um, because of situations like this where all of a sudden there's no vested interest or no uh, sort of long-term view of thinking they're going to continue to be involved with it so they can kind of come in, do whatever they need to do and then leave and then it's like everyone's left to pick up the pieces. Um, kind of how, how do you fit, like where do you sit on the fence in that sort of discussion in terms of basketball people, non-basketball people? And kind of what's your opinion on, on sort of Humby's departure and, and why do you think that is? I was very disappointed that Nick left. I was surprised uh, as well. Um, uh, but, you know, it was very, very demanding on his time. He was probably, um, without exception, uh, he put a huge amount of time of going around and talking to everyone. Um, and that's very, very uh, demanding uh, but he chose to do it that way. He wanted to hear from everyone, um, and it was a great train on his time. And he's at working in a sport which has uh, very little, little resources. Uh, you know, he'd come from football, he'd come from lawn tennis, uh, and those are not two sports that are short of a few bob to throw at any problem. And he came into basketball, never had uh, a great... It's had resourceful people who are able to make uh, something out of uh, not a great deal. So this was always going to be challenging for, for him. Um, he also came into a situation in terms of the governing body structure, uh, which I would argue has not been well thought through. So um, basketball did what football couldn't do. FIFA to create a structure for a GB team uh, that they managed to do it for London Olympics and then it all collapsed in a heap of um, uh, national interest. Um, basketball's managed to deliver it um, and it's created this structure with BBF and the whole NGB. And it's been, it's been, this is coming from FIFA. Let's get it right. FIFA are demanding this in order to um, deal with the whole Great Britain situation. But I don't think they've thought through how it's all going to be funded. Um, so you've got BBF City, you've got the home nations, which, okay, have lots of members and they can collect fees and they can run league and they have league fees, they have members fees and so on and so forth. Um, BBF hasn't got any members. 
So the question is, where, except the, the home NGBs, and the three home NGBs are very unequal in size. Wales compared with Scotland is much smaller, uh, less, less developed, and then Scotland compared with England is even smaller. So the home nations are all the, di the different sizes, so Wales is relatively, commercially, very, very small. Um, uh, Scotland's in mean term home NGP. Uh, so where does the funds come from BBF uh, in that unequal situation in terms of size, but they all have one vote? And then you look at the government funding, UK sport has been forced in their view of the world, which is to chase, not to chase, but to focus on metals that are more likely and it's more cost effective to do that. And basketball is never going to be in that category of metals that are relatively straightforward to get to if you do X, Y, Z, because it's a team sport. It's massively competitive. It's very difficult to even Europe and Olympics. So you have UK sport coming back from Rio reinforced in their view that the resources they have, they're not going to spend much of it on team sports because uh, those medals are all very, very difficult. And um, so I don't think this whole structure from a funding point of view has been well thought through. They've been very fortunate that in those circumstances sport, in, and, and I emphasize England, has been uh, willing to step in and be supportive to a Great Britain, um, so that that was always going to be a challenge that was always going to be needed to be addressed. There are ways of addressing it, um, such as creating the Great Britain teams as a strong commercial property in their own right. Um, but that takes time. Without a shadow of doubt, that takes time to do. Uh, I think it's it's doable, uh, but it's how do we get from A to B? I think it's a three year three or four year plan to create to, to make Great Britain a uh, valuable commercial uh, property. Um, but um, there's been so much focus on structure, process, strategy um, and government funding that not a great deal of attention is put to that yet. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, I would, I would totally agree with you on, on the funding thing. Um, but for me, the, the biggest shock about all this stuff, you know, is that the BBF became the official member on October the 1st, and it's happened now, you know, without a lot of fanfare. It's kind of just, you know, been slid under the rug almost. But there's no clear, even even now still, there's no clear process of how it's actually going to work. And it's like, well, we've known this for how long? Who's in place that's trying to, trying to put in um, execute, executable strategies of how it's going to happen? You know, I think... The, the obvious example for me is, you know, when England England announced the, the initial squad list for the junior national teams um, a couple of months a month month or month or two ago, and uh, there's just no there was no real mention of GB how it was going to work with GB, um, and it's almost like they're making it up as they go along, and it's like, well, you know, we've known this for a year now. How are we not in a position where it's like we don't know something as basic as how the junior national team program is going to work or the development pathway, which. GB should essentially now be in full control of. Yeah, I, 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 it's it's uh, it's and I you know am sympathetic to it, but equally we have to remember that a lot of new people have come 
into the sport. They don't necessarily have the background in 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 basketball. New into BE, new into BBF. Um, they've also buying into this situation of the funding where you can support a lot of well, what happens in Rio. Well, what's happened in Rio is it's only going to reinforce what's what was happening before. So that avenue of funding has sort of disappeared uh, in terms of its potential. So, yeah, it can be frustrating, but also when you look at the, the, the cards that have been dealt, um, it, it is understandable to me. Nevertheless, I am disappointed that, uh, that, that, that Nick has left. Lisa Rain, Wainwright has now been brought in. Uh, she is now full time. She's creating a team within GB. Um, she's got a limited funding uh, envelope within which to work, uh, both in time and money. Uh, but that's her job now to do it, to get on and put in place with those plans and deal with the issues that you've just raised and deal with uh, Basketball England, Basketball Scotland and Basketball Wars and, and make it all work. Uh, she has uh, a background in with Sport England, with netball, with volleyball, and um, hopefully uh, she'll consult with the right people and make it happen. There's been a lot of talk about the, um, the Federation bringing the, the Professional League operating licence in-house as well. Um, kind of what are your thoughts on that and how do you see that working? I have no idea what you mean by in-house, but if you, if you mean limited resources, uh, we've been in discussion about it uh, over many months in line with the uh, published uh, strategy um, that was published in May, which all the sport poured into. We're making excellent progress on that. Um, so um, uh, any suggestion that uh, BBF would, quote, bring a league in-house, quote, unquote, I, I, I don't think it was ever, ever an option that was seriously considered. By anybody. When the that strategy document um, that you just referred to was released, uh, what were your thoughts on it? What, you know, do you agree with the whole thing? Are there parts of it that you disagree with it? Um, you know, what's your general opinion? No, so I, so um, I, along with many many others, was consulted on the document. I commented on it in detail, and I was happy to. Support Support it, and indeed I do support it, and indeed I wrote only today in various correspondence with uh, other parties in basketball, reminding them uh, what was in the strategy and that we should all remain committed as other people come in. I think that's really important. A lot of time and effort was invested in that by quite a lot of people. There's no point in doing that if we can um, do our own thing again. I think that would just be massively uh, a thing to do. I, I, you know, I don't, I didn't necessarily um, um, uh, 100% agree with every word that was written, but I was happy once it had all been I was happy to it. I've spent uh, many months through the summer working with uh, BBF on aspects of that strategy. Now, looking at the immediate future for the BBL, um, you know, it's BBL's had a pretty positive run over the last uh, few years in terms of moving forward and progression. Um, there's just been the signing of, well, there's the BBC deal for this year. Um, there's a deal with Perform. Um, kind of, how do you feel about the immediate future and, and the sort of next year or two uh, for the general trajectory of the professional league? I, I, think we're, I think we're in the best shape we've been now for more than a decade. Um, we were 
very fortunate to get Bob Hope back um, working for us on the commercial side. He has a lot of credibility that's led directly to the uh, deals that you mentioned with uh, Perform. Uh, they're backing up a previous deal, long-term deal, uh, cash deal we have with Molten that was originally brought to us by Bob when he was on. We've also done the deal with Kappa. We have a deal with uh, Tickets.com. We've now got on board as well Sir Rodney Walker as chairman. I think that's a massive statement for the league. Been there, done it, got the T-shirt and everything, whether it's football, running, whatever, stadium developments. He's on the board of Wembley Stadium uh, and so on. So Rodney, uh, I say, brings massive credibility. Uh, now it's upping our game as, as a league and as clubs. Uh, we're working very, very hard uh, to make our, our events uh, even better. Events have been our, uh, our main source of income in recent years. We've done it very, very successfully. And Andy Webb is working extremely hard on that uh, as we speak, but we've made progress. So we're not, you know, we're not where we want to be um, by any means. Um, we have a lot of ambition to get better. Um, but there has been immense progress over the last 12 to 24 in spite of all of the other uncertainty swirling around. And I think if we can now get a settled period, we can and really push the sport up to the agenda. And, uh, facilities that we have a degree of control or ownership over is absolutely critical uh, to that strategy how do you think how do you think the problem with the disparity between clubs is solved you know I, I briefly touched upon this with Paul you know you've got some clubs like yourself and, and Newcastle which are obviously uh, at a much higher operating standard and professional standard than some of the lower clubs how do you increase the level of the of the lower clubs like you know what are the issues there I think I think uh, you know the the main the, the fact is um, if you use Paul as the best example this didn't happen overnight Paul's followed a consistent strategy since he took prime responsibility for the club at the end of the um, Sir John Hall area of, uh, era of Newcastle Sport and he's applied a consistent strategy and worked at it Ditto um, the riders have been working consistently. On a, on, on a strategy uh, to build over uh, a number of years. What we're keen on doing um, as BBL is to share this practice, to help other clubs um, uh, look at what we're doing and find ways of doing it. None of this is required writing huge checks. What it has required is uh, committing to community basketball, the player pathway, and all of those aspects, and working at it with local partners. The funding for what Paul is doing, the funding for what we're doing, large chunks of our revenue comes from partners. Uh, so um, it's about putting in place those relationships. And as other people are coming up to look at our venue and how we did it, talk to our partners and what's in it for them, etc., etc. The same thing applies to other aspects of our business. And I know numbers of people have been up to see Paul about his foundation, how he's built that, uh, what were the critical steps along the way, 
and equally they're very welcome to come to talk to us about hours and so on. Um, I think we all wish we had more hours in the day um, because it is very simple um, that the clubs who are currently operating on much lower uh, revenue bases are brought up to a standard. We have a plan to do that. We have developed a plan that with um, external investment to, to do that. We're out with that plan as we speak, looking for uh, partners who want to bring all the clubs over a period of t uh, time up to a uh, uh, higher uh, standard than we all currently are. One of the things uh, you mentioned there was the the player development pathway. Um, now, obviously, at Leicester, you're in a quite a, well, you're in a unique situation um, in the in in the sense that you you know you've got a junior national league club, you've got uh, an academy, you've got uh, the university link with Loughborough, then you've got the the professional team. So it's almost like you you've ticked, ticked every box. Um, but then what do, you, what do you think the next step is in terms of then actually being able to raise the level so that you're producing players from the age of four or five that are coming all the way through the system to then suit up for the pro club? What we most important thing is coaching. Um, so I think what we all need to do is, and that's when I say we, I'm talking about governing bodies, clubs, and so on, clubs like ourselves, we need to be um, looking at our coaching um, investments, looking at our coaching standards, work more closely together so we can improve the quality of our development, etc. Because I think that is not an issue only for basketball. It's the same thing I hear in rugby. I mean, rugby keeps having to go overseas to find its coaches. Um, We've seen the same thing happening in cricket and so on. Um, in our younger coaches, are the coaches who are working with the under-12s, the under-14s, the under-16s, critical pieces if we're going to create great B, uh, BBL and GB players of the future. So that, to me, has to be a major area of focus going forward. Of course, if we've got good coaches, they need facilities, they need access to facilities, they need access access to lots of time in facilities. So keeping going with the facility strategy will also be a really important aspect of that. Then once you've got the coaches and you've got the facilities, it's all about the competition and giving our young men and women the opportunity to compete against the best on a regular basis. That'll be the next step. Um, when you look, we see some of the stuff that they do in football in terms of giving academy players the opportunity to play against top European academies. Um, it's mind-boggling, you know, wh wh what opportunities these players might do the future development of young football players. When, when we get to that level of giving our young players the chance to play uh, on a regular basis at a club level in Europe, well, that would be the holy grail. Do you think it's fair to say that kind of a lot of the stuff that you're doing at Leicester um, is being done off your own back without much federation support? Like I feel like you know stuff like improving coaching, you know, building a facility, you know, th that's the kind of thing where you need the federation to take a lead on if it's really going to improve um, nationally anyway, rather than just in your own pocket. I think that's the area of if I was to 
point point the finger at all of us as a sport um, over the last number of years. We have not worked together on these issues. I have been pressing. Um, I'm not going to say BBF. It was actually before BBF even existed. Pressing for a greater alignment between, particularly at the younger level, between the work of the clubs, the work in universities, the work in the pathways, and the work of the NGBs. This has been something we BBL have been banging on about for at least the last four or five years. And unfortunately, with all the other stuff going on and worries about funding and, and funding bids in UK sport and and uh, all the nonsense that went in with in, at, in uh, Basketball England a few years ago, it's just never got the focus and intention. And I'm now hopeful with the new people coming in, uh, particularly into Basketball England, uh, and particularly with the background, you know, what the things they've done in cycling to improve the uh, well, the class and capability of, of young British cyclists. I'd like to think that uh, we'll have a much more common discussion, a much more uh, open and welcoming uh, uh, strategy. We'll only be successful um, uh, at, the, at the national level. Uh, whether that's uh, playing GB or whether that's Leicester Riders playing in Champions League, we'll only be successful if we all work together because the resources are scarce in this sport and uh, and wasting them in uh, pointless duplication is criminal. Um, and uh, there's been too much duplication, too much isolation, too many silos, um, and uh, we have simply got to stop it. Um, otherwise, we'll never progress. Well, when you when you're talking about duplication, what, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, I'm, what I what I mean is, um, if if clubs are doing certain types of developments with players um, who play in academy leagues or whatever, it should be done in conjunction with national team coaches. Um, we should be developing our uh, uh, a philosophy of the way we want to play as a national team that should be shared all the way throughout the sport. Resources that we have within our structure at Loughborough University should be shared with the national team, strength and conditioning, physio, all of that stuff. There should be regular discussion, regular sharing of information, regular sharing of developing of philosophies and so on and so forth. And I can tell you, and there isn't a great deal of that sharing going on. One thing I, I did want to ask, um, which is more about just you personally, because I, I've done tried to do a little bit of research, didn't get very far, but what exactly is your background and how did you first actually get involved with uh, with the riders? I played, uh, I ended up in Ireland at university. I played basketball at Trinity College Dublin. I played for the Dublin Select teams um, and, I, um, and I graduated with degrees in physics and maths from Trinity College. Um, got a job in engineering as I mentioned all my whole career in uh, building in the electricity supply and building power stations. And I came into Loughborough All-Stars in 1974. Um, and I have involved with them almost continuously since then. I have had periods on succumbing for work out of the country, for example, between 1980 and 1981, and between 2002 and 2000. But 
throughout that period of time, I've played, administered, been company secretary, um, been media, um, and seen, um, over that period of time, I've seen the ups, I've seen the downs. I was chair to something new when I had to uh, start commuting to come, and I was also on the board of BE for one year, so um, in the early 2000s. So um, my commitment is long term. We've seen, we've tried lots of different ways of doing it. We've made, but we're still here. We're still breathing, we're still fighting, and we built a venue um, which nobody said we could. Um, and uh, we did it single-handedly, um, and we did it off the back of the riders' back because we didn't have a lot of cash. Um, so um, that says something about it. And in Newcastle, he's got a great program. It has real legitimacy in, the, uh, in his market. You know, his team is in the past. Is, the, the top team in BBC Northwest Awards and things like that. You know, there's there's credibility there. It can stand up on its own. Uh, microcosm of basketball, but in the general wider infrastructure. And we've got to build on those uh, things and uh, become a much more credible sport uh, in ter- uh, more widely. Can you repeat that last bit again? We're just the connection is getting a little bit dodgy, so we'll look to wrap it up soon. But yeah, can you just repeat that last the last part of what you were saying there? Well, what I was saying is um, the, the way to go forward now is to look at the things that we're doing well, where we have credibility, like the Eagles up in the North uh, East, like the Riders, like other programs around the country. Get, you know, recognize those things, build upon it. And then we'll have more credibility as a sport that can hold its own in the wider British sporting infrastructure. Perfect. I think that's a, that's a good place to leave it because we're about the, at the hour mark and the internet connection is being very, very dodgy. Um, but yeah, I'd just like to say a, a huge thanks for joining us. It's much appreciated. It's been a really interesting conversation and we'll have to get you back on for a part two when we've got good internet at some point in the future. Okay, Sam, that's great. All right, Thank awesome. you very much. Thanks, Kevin. Cheers. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.